2: Welcome to Grand Challenges from Nature. Grand Challenges is our roundtable series in which a panel of experts takes on the biggest challenges facing society and asks what scientists, governments, charities, even you and I should be doing to try and solve them. I'm Adam Levy and in this episode, Energy. In the heart of Morocco lies a small city called Wazazat. This city is flanked by inhospitable terrain. To its north, the High Atlas Mountains. To its south, the Sahara Desert. Fifteen kilometres outside the city lies a particularly barren piece of land.
1: There was nothing, really nothing. It was really a
2: deserted area. This is Yusuf's Stitu. He's a project manager for the Moroccan energy agency MAZEN. Youssef worked on a huge solar plant that has breathed new life into this desolate land. Now
0: it's a really
2: a change. It has a value now. This value comes from rows upon rows of parabolic mirrors that cover the site. These mirrors concentrate the heat energy from the sun, ultimately producing steam, which is used to generate electricity. And this solar power plant is the largest of its kind
1: in the world. And the advantage of this technology is that we can store the thermal energy and we can use it during the night. And this is very important.
2: But Morocco needs to do much more in order to power its future. Its energy needs are expected to triple in little over a decade. And because Morocco has few fossil fuels of its own, a lot of money is spent importing most of its energy from other countries. So the solar plant at Warzazat represents Morocco's transition to energy independence as much as its transition to green energy.
1: So for us in Morocco, renewables are really, let's say, the only path to seek this independence.
2: And Morocco's path to energy independence doesn't end with this one power plant. Other solar plants are planned for Wurzazat, and Morocco is planning to harness the wind and sun more and more in coming years. Morocco's successes in funding and developing these ambitious projects could even inspire other countries in the region. Here's Georgetta Alktor, who researches green growth, technology and policy at the University of Erlangen, Nuremberg.
0: Within in North Africa, other countries are looking at the experience of Morocco and when Morocco has a positive uh, experience other countries will follow suit.
2: To Youssef, this is just one of the future benefits of these projects. But he believes Moroccans are already seeing the benefits today.
1: This is changing our lives and the lives of the people in Morocco. So this kind of project is really giving value to this region and to the people that are living there.
2: In this episode of Grand Challenges, we'll be discussing the challenges of transforming the world's energy infrastructure and how these challenges vary across the world. And joining me in the studio in London to unpick this problem are three experts in energy. Jakob Mulugeta, who is Professor of Energy and Development Policy at University College London. Laura Diaz-Anadon is University Lecturer in Public Policy at the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge and Professor Nigel Brandon, who is Director of the Sustainable Gas Institute at Imperial College London. Welcome, everyone. There are many challenges associated with energy, but today we're going to discuss perhaps the grandest, the challenge of transitioning to low-carbon energy. So before we discuss what needs to happen, where are we today, Nigel, in in
1: Europe, say? So the en- the energy system we have today... Uh, in Europe and in many other developed economies is primarily one that's come from the perspective of a fossil economy. Uh, Take the UK as an example. Most of our heat, and we use a lot of energy for heat in the UK, uh, comes from natural gas. Power generation is a mix of nuclear and fossil and some renewables in increasing numbers. And our transport fuel is almost entirely oil, uh, either in the form of gasoline or diesel. So some really interesting questions about what the future might be uh, and how we move there from where we are today is, I think, the heart of the debate. Of course, in a, in a less developed economy, it's quite different today.
3: Well, in, in a less developed economy, the picture tends to be more of a, a kind of a dual energy picture where you have a small modern sector, which essentially you could argue that that modern sector is you know, more or less similar to what Nigel just uh, described. But that's a small part of it. The larger part is where you have a high dependence on, uh, uh, on solid biomass, uh, mostly burnt you know, through very traditional, rudimentary appliances. And often that uh, fuel collected by uh, you know very arduous means, mostly women and children.
2: Do you think it's safe to assume we are going to transition away from fossil fuels? And
1: is this transition already underway? Well, I think it's certainly safe to assume that we need to decarbonize the energy system, and all the climate science tells us that. I think it's also safe to assume that moving away completely from fossil fuels is a real challenge. So what I think you'll see is a different energy mix. Whether it's completely fossil fuel free, I think uh, we can discuss, but I think that's a real challenge. Compared
2: to a few years ago, Laura, does it seem like we're... More on that path than than we were, or is it still quite unknown whether we're, we're heading in that direction?
0: Um, so, as of when we look at where, for example, solar prices were five or ten years ago, things looked much worse for renewables, but now things have uh, gone down, and we've seen many countries around the world, in particular in Europe, that have seen a, a significant share of their especially electricity mix coming from renewables.
2: Jakob, would you be able to paint a sort of broad picture? of what a low-carbon world would look like compared to what we have today? We don't, we don't have a,
3: a blueprint, as it were. Um, so clearly it's, it's a, a lot of imagination, you know, that we have to uh, uh, to use. Um, my, um, perhaps, you know, understanding or vision of uh, a low-carbon future is where uh, your electricity system is uh, uh, significantly decarbonized. But also, in addition, I would argue uh, that there has to be some degree of uh, awareness building and uh, behavioral change that uh, aligns with the whole technological uh, uh, innovation that we should expect in a low-carbon future.
2: Laura, what would you say is the tech that we're, we're missing to get to that future, if there is any?
0: I think uh, we're still at a point uh, in which we need uh, innovation in a range of technologies. Um, But uh, one of the areas I would highlight is utility-scale energy storage, um, since it's something that we will need to increase the uh, share of electricity that comes from renewables. But I would say that we also need improvements in things like carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, We need further improvements in solar power, and I think there's still a lot to do in the long term in things like nuclear power.
2: Laura mentioned utility scale storage, which is anything that can store electrical energy in a power grid on large scales. This is something that becomes more important with renewables because you need storage to even out the variable power generation you get with wind and solar. In practice, though, what would storage
1: on such large scales actually look like? Utility-scale storage could be very large tanks of energy, so big dams full of water like we have today on the tops of mountains. Um, But also it could be lots and lots of smaller tanks of energy. These could be uh, batteries in people's houses, uh, batteries in people's cars, uh, or uh, other types of storage device embedded around cities or within the energy system as a whole. So there's quite a lot of choice as to the way we go we're likely to need a mixture of all of that in practice do you think that
2: we could build a low carbon infrastructure today do we have enough
1: technology if we had the the will and the finance to make that happen yes engineers can build you a low carbon energy system today technically we can do that it's about how much the public uh, is prepared to pay because it's absolutely clear that today that system would be more expensive than the ones we've got. Do you both agree, Jacob and Laura, that the main thing holding us back is financial?
0: I would say so, yes. Uh, I think at this point, I would add one point actually to Nigel's point, which is it would not only be very expensive, but also it would hurt the most those that have the least ability to pay.
3: I mean, certainly finance is at the heart of it all. Um, but also political will is something that uh, that is in, in deficit at the moment. And at every moment when we've seen some, some major breakthroughs, the, this has been accompanied by, uh, by political will, but also you know, the type of political will that allows you to come up with the policies and institutions that, uh, uh, you know, that
1: support R&D, for example. I would just also add to my comment that we can build a system today. Well, of course we can, but a lot of the innovation we need is about building that at a more acceptable cost.
2: So are the technological advances that we're looking for just cheaper versions of what we already have?
0: No, we to actually, if we are thinking out full decarbonization, we need things beyond what we already have. We know innovation takes a very long time. So, you know, solar panels, the idea for solar panels came up in 1957 in Bell Labs. And, you know, so we are now in 2017. So things take a very long time. And uh, all of us looking at uh, innovation, what we see is that there are technologies at all uh, stages of the innovation cycle. So some things are closed, some things we don't even know about.
1: For a lot of innovations that are um, perhaps rich- in materials science, for example. um, If those are currently in an academic lab um, such as my own, uh, it's at least 20 years before you see a product that you can buy as a consumer, in my experience, before that's at the point at which it can be safely delivered
0: Even after we get to the 20 years after the lab to commercialization, before that particular technology or invention can contribute at scale or significantly, that also takes a long time and a lot of uh, political will, public policy and changes in behaviour.
2: Jakob, we've already hinted that what's needed varies across the world. How does what's needed in, say, Africa vary from what's needed here in Europe?
3: I can speak you know in, on, on Africa. It was just uh, you know my, my mind is still fresh from, uh, from my trip to Kenya and, uh, and Ethiopia. If you take electrification in Africa, I mean that 's that's a, a challenge which has not been seen anywhere in, in the world, in the sense that uh, what you have is uh, large uh, proportions of the populations that just simply don 't have access to, uh, uh, to power. Uh, you have communities that are sparsely populated. And so that becomes quite a challenge, you know, to, uh, to build inf- the type of inf- infrastructure that we've seen uh, elsewhere uh, built elsewhere. But at the moment, you know, given the, the, the cost of, uh, certain renewables, uh, and also, you know, innovations around, um, um uh, information technology, it's making it possible for, uh, uh distributed generation to become a reality.
2: And by distributed generation, you basically mean lots of small spread out power generators, be they solar panels, or wind turbines, pretty different to the power generation at the moment in Europe, where handfuls of very big power plants power each country. Could this help some African nations leapfrog fossil fuels and go straight to generating energy with renewables?
3: You know, you're looking at a blank sheet in, uh, in, in Africa. You know, Ethiopia, to give you an example, is it has a 100 million uh, population with uh, 75% non access to electricity. So this is a real challenge. But the leapfrogging option, particularly if we're talking about uh, uh, new battery systems, you know, the, or storage systems that, uh, that are relatively cheap. So you have, you know, a ready made kind of market there that would uh, benefit from, from uh, these types of, uh, uh, n- well, new breakthroughs, but also existing uh, technologies.
2: And Nigel, might it be possible for some African countries, like Morocco, which we heard about earlier, to not only generate their own electricity using renewables, but actually export renewable energy to other countries?
1: It's a really interesting idea. It, 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 it has some challenges. Um, But it clearly makes sense, if possible, to harness renewables in regions where those renewables are rich, Uh, in the same way that oil and gas today is found in some parts of the world, and we move it around to parts of the world which don't have access to those resources. We could conceive of a world in which we harness renewable energy from where it's rich and move that to where it's needed. The challenge, of course, is in what energy vector, what carrier, what form do you move that energy around? A tanker full of oil is a very... A dense source of large amounts of energy. If we're making electricity, that's harder to move large amounts of electricity long distances. Um, we can think about very high voltage transmission lines, and certainly in China and parts of Asia, they have very aggressive programs to develop very high voltage transmission lines that can move electricity across very long distances. We might also think about uh, turning that renewable electricity into a uh, chemical uh, fuel like hydrogen and then having tankers of hydrogen or pipelines of hydrogen that we move around the world. We keep coming back to infrastructure. It's very important how we harness renewable energy. It's very important how we um, use uh, our fuels efficiently. But it's also very important to think about the infrastructure that interconnects the energy system of the future.
2: L- Laura, those are, I suppose, mostly technological concerns for why that kind of Energy transfer between nations might be difficult. What are the political concerns for this this new kind of energy infrastructure?
0: I think some of the some of the additional issues that would need to be discussed or that would play a role in let's say a huge investment in North Africa to not just install solar panels but then transmit the electricity to Europe are related to political and uh, geopolitical and national security issues, so especially now with the turmoil. In, uh, in uh, North Africa and some of the issues there, the, it's is very hard to get investment for that sort of thing. And, and as Nigel said, it's easier to kind of ship something than to have an infrastructure there that may be more vulnerable. So uh, going back to the financing point that we were talking about earlier, uh, having enough certainty for investors, uh, something like this, which is very expensive, infrastructure is expensive, uh, is uh, safe enough for institutional investors or other investors.
2: We've spoken a fair bit about Europe and about some nations in Africa. China is, of course, the world's biggest emitter. Is that assumption beginning to falter? Are we beginning to see any change in China's direction with emissions, Laura?
0: So what we're seeing in China is that they're still committed to the Paris Agreement. So recently they said we are committed to the Paris Agreement. So we're still looking at uh, the next uh, couple of decades, a system that is slowly moving towards renewables. But I would say that they are uh, showing uh, the policymakers in China seriousness with their uh, plans to have a cap-and-trade system for the whole economy. Uh, they are now the largest wind and solar panel manufacturers. So I, I think uh, China is very serious about this, not only because it's starting to feel uh, very significantly the harm uh, from local air pollution. So uh, this is uh, a major issue, but also seeing a huge opportunity in terms of uh, competitiveness.
2: The aim of the Paris climate deal is to achieve net zero emissions in the second half of the century. Well, one of the aims. Nigel, right near the beginning, you said that low carbon, you could see that as fairly feasible, but a zero carbon economy seemed quite a difficult thing to achieve. Why is there this added challenge of zero relative to
1: low Hopefully, any engineer listening would recognize that as you approach 100% of anything, it gets increasingly difficult to get that last few percent of performance. Uh, and is, in this case, performance in terms of carbon reduction. Take the simple example of home insulation in cold countries. Home insulation is cheap to do, it's relatively easy to do, uh, and it's cost effective. Uh, stripping the last couple of percent out of your fossil fuel power plant in terms of its CO2 emissions or having 100% of your electricity from renewables um, gets more expensive. And of course, there is the additional challenge, as already mentioned, that we might need to go to negative emissions, um, which is a real uh, difficult uh, concept to envisage. But I mean, I'd also highlight Laura's point that it's not just about carbon, it's also about air quality. And I think a lot of the immediacy which is very helpful actually, is about air quality and particularly air quality in urban environments, so cities and more and more of the world's population lives in cities. So this is important. So it's air, carbon is important. It clearly is important as a big picture, but air quality is, in, is, is actually immediate and it's local and it relates to people's lives and in democratic countries that helps engender political will. And so I think these two things together are actually um, a very helpful drive for change. Laura, how do you feel about reaching net zero emissions
2: within this century?
0: I'm, I'm, I'm a little risk averse and I wouldn't um, bet, but I think, you know, to 2100 a lot of things can happen. You know, we saw with the Shell Gas Revolution how yes, things were in the making from back in the 80s and then things uh, really um, sped, uh, sped up in you know 2006, 7 or so. Uh, you know, there are things that even if they're in the background, we don't know how quickly they might come up. So I think it is possible. I, I wouldn't put a probability um, but I, I am hopeful that when we're looking at 83 years ahead um you know <laughs> and that this will be possible one thing that we might see also is more uh frequent storms more frequent floods and and things that uh will also change the economics and the political uh calculations some of the areas where we've seen uh action um from policymakers and also the public having areas that have suffered a lot from a particular uh from things like droughts or floods in you know in um in counting the U.S., for example, so I think a lot can happen.
2: If you were to win uh, the energy lottery and you had to put your money into one thing in particular, do you have something that instantly springs to mind as the the place to put your money?
0: For what? For making money myself, or for <laughs> actually increasing the chances of decarbonisation? <laughs> let's, let's say
2: for solving this problem.
0: In I guess in terms of both the probability of something happening and the payoff that that something happening would have, I think I might stick to storage.
2: And when you say storage, do you mean batteries?
0: Mo- mostly batteries. Most of the I know mostly about batteries, um, but I I agree with Nigel. There are lots of different options.
2: And Jakob, where do you think it would be best for you to put your million dollars? Million dollars. Well, maybe, maybe two million. <laughs> we'll give me a bit more. Okay, we'll give, you, we'll give you a billion. We'll give you a billion. Um, well, I,
3: I think I would also invest uh, personally heavily in, uh, in mini grids um, across uh, regions where uh, electrification has, been, uh, has not been possible.
2: Mini grids being power grids on much smaller scales that connect people in a small area rather than across an entire country or region.
3: You know, this is one area where we've made quite a lot of interesting breakthroughs on, on the large scale. We can go as far as, you know, doing sort of intercontinental connections. On the off-grid side, the same thing. Standalone systems are, you know, operational in, in their millions. But I think the real, uh, you know, the real breakthrough that needs to happen in order to be able to scale up electrification is going to be in the mini grids area. So that would be where I would invest my money
2: Nigel, we've had storage, we've had mini grids. Do you have
1: anything further to invest your money in? Yeah, and I'll add another naught on the billion, I think. (laughs) Make it (laughs) it ten. (laughs) Firstly, I I completely agree with the previous two suggestions, which for me are both around this issue around flexibility and time-shifting supply and demand, which is so helpful in lowering the cost of transitioning to a lower carbon energy system. Um, So as those have been taken, I will put carbon capture and storage in the mix Um, perhaps unglamorous because it it implies a continuing access to fossil fuels. But I think in terms of um, there are so many countries which rely on fossil fuels, India and China are two of them, but over 80% of the primary energy supply in the UK is still fossil. Um, And we mustn't forget that it's not just all about power, it's also transport fuels and it's also heat, which is a big deal. Um, So I put carbon capture and storage. Can we really demonstrate a, mean, a technological uh, means to sequester, store or reuse CO2 in in a way that's cost effective. And at the same time, we can be consistent with the 2 degrees C aims or the 1.5 degrees C aims out of Paris. For me, I think it's a risk to not develop that technology set so that those countries that want to or choose to or politically must use their fossil reserves um, you know, have no option other than to emit co2 uh, in very large amounts do any of you have any other questions for each
3: other the current you know political changes that we are seeing i just wonder you know what what the views are in terms of you know the implications for energy systems in in the us and uh, and elsewhere
2: who would like to go first you're both sort of leaning away from your respective <laughs> microphones
0: i say something very quick on the on the us um clearly uh, President Trump has moved towards unwinding some of the important uh policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that President Obama put in place. Obviously it wasn't a great uh uh piece of news for, you know, Paris and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but I would say I'm perhaps a little bit more optimistic that it won't make a huge impact because there are other factors that are driving this transition the natural gas and some of the other falling renewable energy prices?
1: So from my perspective uh, on the US, uh, certainly scientists that I know there are concerned, partly uh, in in no small measure because of their uh, implications on on science funding around some of these topic areas. Um, But, uh, I mean, the US is a significant player. Um, but it's not the only player there are many other countries involved and we've you know we're seeing a shift in leadership arguably from to china which is interesting and uh, given the scale of the challenge you know a small number of years well it, it it's a not it's, it could be a setback or a way forward but actually this is a long game and um i'm not i'm not pessimistic i think it's a bit frustrating uh, but at the end of the day i i see it as a as a actually a relatively small diversion in the overall journey from a global perspective.
2: Well, in spite of investing over $11 billion over the course of this conversation, we've still (laughs) failed to fix this grand challenge. Thank you to Nigel Brandon of Imperial College London, Laura Diaz-Anadon, who's at Cambridge, and Jakob Mulugeta, who is based at University College London. This is sadly the last in our series of grand challenges, but make sure to track down the others on the podcast feed. There are discussions on ageing, food security and mental health. I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.